Hey guys, Jules here. So last episode, we talked about some of the problems which often arise in the Catholic blogosphere. Problems which sometimes tend to define the entire medium, unfortunately. But in this series, we've also talked about the incredible good which can come from this medium. The communion which can be formed between bloggers themselves and between them and their audiences. And today we're going to talk a little bit about both. going to spend most of our time talking to one blogger whose blogging career has in many ways personified the joys and the struggles, the highs and the lows of the Catholic blogosphere. Hi, my name is Simka Fisher. I am a blogger. Um, I'm a Catholic mother of 10. I'm a writer. I'm a speaker. I'm a freelance writer, but um, essentially I am a blogger. Simka has been blogging in the Catholic world for over a decade. She has written for Faith and Family, Diocesan Papers, Alatea, Pathios, The Register, America Magazine, and even the Catholic Weekly in Australia. Then I started working for the um, Catholic Weekly, which is an Australian newspaper, and I said to myself, this is on the other side of the world. I will work for Catholics as long as they're on the other side of the world. <laughs> what's the what's the minimum distance like a thousand miles right, like exactly <laughs> right. if I go straight through the earth and then I can have an editorial meeting and there's a 14 minute time difference I think I this is the story of Simka Fisher and the authenticity dilemma We are now in the third installment of our blogging series. By the way, I highly recommend if you haven't heard the rest of this series, go back and listen to the first two episodes, please. It'll help understand what we're talking about. But for this episode, I think it will help to not simply focus on Simka as we tell the story. Because really at the heart of today's episode and perhaps this entire series is the audience. Blogging and other digital communities thrive when bloggers seek to understand the impact of their words on the reader and how much their words can either do immense good or cause further division. So we're going to dive a bit into those audiences today by telling Simka's story because doing so also provides us with a greater understanding of the power of the blog to communicate truth, goodness, and beauty throughout the world. So for today, we're gonna split this interaction with the audience into two parts. We're gonna call the first part blogging for evangelization, or perhaps we can call that teaching and preaching, and blogging for communion. To begin blogs for teaching and preaching, it of course made sense to start with a preacher. My name is Father John Hollowell. Father John, who we met in the past two episodes, by the way, along with being a priest for the Archdiocese of Indianapolis, the pastor of two parishes, and a chaplain for a local college, also in all his spare time, (laughs) 
blogs. And my blog is onthisrock.blogspot.com. Father John, if you remember for episode one, started blogging almost 10 years ago after his hero, Pope Benedict XVI, called upon seminarians, deacons, and priests to engage more with technology. Now, at first, Father John would simply post videos of his homilies from the previous Sunday online, but as time went on, Father John saw the benefit of the blog as a form of apologetics and preaching. I think for me, when I blog, I always think about um, the person who wants to be challenged but doesn't necessarily want or isn't able or in a position to be challenged all the time in a one-on-one scenario might benefit from you know reading this short little challenging thing on the blog in fact for a priest like father john the nature of the platform itself made it easier to communicate truth with his audiences for me when i preach and when i blog i think that i always think of it as sort of a a prophetic act like in the sense not not that you know we're all called to be prophetic and so What I mean by that is thinking about um, this idea that it allows both in the homily uh, and in blogging, there's a sense in which you can say more challenging things because you're speaking to a more anonymous group. Now, there are many blogs out there who approach the platform in similar ways to Father John. They see blogging as an opportunity for authentic teaching. And the written word can often be even more effective than trying to challenge or teach someone one-on-one in person. Jenny Eubing, for example, often uses her blog to explain certain teachings or doctrines. Tito Edwards created three separate Catholic blogging platforms, all for the purposes of educating educating and preaching, and on and on and on. The blog has become so effective in teaching the faith that many small faith-sharing groups all over the country will use someone's personal blog for weekly discussion and learning. That is just incredible when you think about it. But again, in many of these cases, the audiences themselves often agree, or at least are trying to agree, and adhere to church teaching. What happens when the audience doesn't want to learn the faith? What happens, in fact, when the audience disagrees with the church completely? We can think of this style of blogging as blogging to engage, or what can be understood as very subtle evangelization. Here's my old friend Sarah, who blogs at Fumbling Towards Grace. I really enjoy talking with people who describe themselves as pro-choice about abortion because I don't know if you'll recall from when we first met, I used to be very, very pro-choice. And so I'm very familiar with where they're coming from and their motivations. And I don't think they're evil and I don't demonize those people. I want to talk to them. And there was one conversation in particular that showed Sarah just how important her work as a blogger was. And so I was so happy to talk with this, this woman and, you know, answer a lot of her questions. And eventually, um, you know, she was interested in the NAPRO technology and kind of some of the health applications of that. And, you know, so she, um, ended up going off the pill and, and she and her husband at that, yeah, she and her husband had just, um, decided to become NFP teachers because where they lived, there weren't any teachers around. So I just thought that was such a neat moment for me um, 
to see something tangible spiritually happen in someone else's life because of my writing. I have spoken to so many other bloggers who have had similar encounters. And at points, I would even get a bit choked up at the realization of how powerful this medium can be in the lives of so many people, but especially those who might not necessarily agree with the church. Here's Jenny's take on it. I have some very loyal readers who are like, I'm like a liberal feminist, I've had an abortion, I have this and that, but I really respect that we can have a conversation. And I welcome those opportunities to connect with people like from the other side of the spectrum because we're still both people. Like we're coming from different understandings of the world, but there is a possibility for reconciliation because like all things are being drawn towards him in truth. I doubt you'd find a single blogger who said they hoped their blog didn't engage with their audiences, for better or for worse. (laughs) But as we've spoken about, that engagement can vary wildly from blogger to blogger or even from post to post. And I think it's here that we need to reintroduce this woman. Hi, my name is Simka Fisher. I am a blogger. Um, I'm a Catholic mother of 10. I'm a writer. I'm a speaker. I'm a freelance writer, but um, essentially I am a blogger. As I've mentioned at the top of this episode, Simka has an extensive blogging career, blogging for over 10 years and at numerous religious publications. But I wanted to talk with Simka because one, I've followed her writing over the years and I love her humor and her honesty. But two, I feel like the story of Simka is in a sense the story of the Catholic blog, its highs and its lows, its divisions and its communion. Simka's story helps us to understand how we got to this particular moment in Catholic blogging and perhaps a bit of where we may be going. And it all starts, as most good stories do, with that very first post. Um, I was <laughs> I was a stay-at-home mom. I was homeschooling. I was pregnant. I had a bunch of kids at home. My husband was working late hours. He would be gone until 11 o'clock at night sometimes. And I was going out of my gourd. And from day one, Simka's blog intentionally didn't try to gloss over the realities of life. I don't. I don't remember what my first blog post was about, but I do remember that the photo on it was a picture of my toddler eating spaghetti out of the garbage. Blogging for Simka, as it is for many people I've spoken to for this series, became an outlet into the world outside of their homes. I can speak for Simka myself when I say that being a stay-at-home mom, while beautiful and obviously certainly worth it, can also be incredibly isolating and lonely. It helps when we find those things, whatever they are. For me, it's this podcast. But those things which draw the best out of us and, God willing, also bring good into the world. And that's what Simka found with blogging. I had to write. I had to write or I was going to go out of my mind. And I didn't, you know, it would be a really big day if I got 40 people seeing something that I wrote. Pretty soon, her writings started to get noticed by others as well. And one woman in particular, Danielle Bean, who herself is a tour de force <laughs> in the Catholic world, found Simka's blog. They both were living in New Hampshire and offered her a position with a small magazine called Faith and Family. She said to me one day, you know, you could get paid for this. You could get paid to write. And she actually had, you know, she could actually write a check. She wasn't just saying that. (laughs) 
After her stint with Faith and Family, Simka's talents for the written word started getting noticed by other organizations as well. She started writing articles for Inside Catholic, which is now Crisis Magazine, her local diocesan paper, and then about nine years ago, she caught a big break. So she recommended my name. She said, if you want, if you folks want page views, you should hire Simka Fisher to replace me. This national platform opened up more doors for Simka than she ever could have realized when she pressed publish on that very first post. Her writings at the Register started getting her speaking gigs, more writing opportunities, including at Pathios and Alatea. And most importantly, she was able to provide some income for her family. In case you forgot, she and her husband have 10 kids. Oh my goodness. (laughs) But then something else happened, something which happens a lot for Catholics with public platforms. Part of what's so fascinating about the Catholic blogging world, especially for those who have been in it for a long time, is the process of opening oneself up to the possibility of not always getting it right. Remember, this series is all about walking through the journey of Catholic blogging with the blogger. And part of that journey is being able to recognize times when we could have been better, both as a blogger and as an audience. I wrote wrote a lot of things that I'm ashamed of. I really, I really did. And and it wasn't even necessarily so much the ideas, you know, I, I, but it was the way, it was the way that I expressed myself. I was very, I was very abrasive. I was mean to people. I went after people who had less defenses than I do. And I just, I wasn't careful about how I talked about people and I wasn't careful about how I talked to people. About four or five years ago, Simka started going through some self-examination. She started realizing how she acted in the public sphere wasn't always charitable. So I asked Simka to tell me a little bit about this time, this process of self-reflection, and an article in which she had some doubts or even regrets. I wrote a thing once for the register about um, about men who get vasectomies. And uh, and I talked about it as a you know as a cultural phenomenon and what it what it does to what it does to men and what it does to the relationship between men and women. But I was such a jerk about it. I was I was just, I was vicious. I was cruel and vicious and sarcastic. And that's not Christian. And I really and 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 after I wrote it, you know, a couple of guys got in touch with me and they said, you know. My wife almost died, and I felt like I had to do this for her. And this is and this is how you're treating me. And I felt I, you know, I almost threw up. I felt so bad. I, I didn't immediately back down, but I am now <laughs> officially backing down. Simka started slowly making changes to how she interacted online. And during this time, during this process of self-reflection and change, she wrote some of her most beautiful pieces. But as her writing flourished, something in the air around her began to shift. And this was around the time, um, this was before the 
2016 election and things started to get really weird, <laughs> really, really weird. I don't think I need to remind any of our listeners about just how strange of a time <laughs> 2016 was. We saw the divisive insanity play out in the world around us. And of course, unfortunately, we saw it play out in our own community as well. And during this time, Simka made her feelings about the candidates and really the election in general <laughs> very clear. And I didn't say that it would that a pro-lifer could not vote for Donald Trump, but I said that if you're that you shouldn't reluctantly vote for Donald Trump because he's the most pro-life candidate because he's not. And I, as I said, I stand by that. Now, anyone following the Catholic blogosphere at this time remembers in the summer of 2016, Simka and a fellow blogger, Mark Shea, were let go from the National Catholic Register. We don't need to spend time on the motivations and the rationale behind the firing. Although I will mention this one thing. There was a very concerted effort on behalf of some others in the Catholic online world for one reason or another to get Semka fired. Letter writing campaigns, social media calls to action, and even rather remarkably uncharitable articles. I posted some of these articles online just to give you a sense of some of the things that were said about her. But our discussion today isn't about trying to get to the bottom of what happened in 2016. Instead, it's about what Simka learned about herself and her online presence as a result of this time, and perhaps what we all can learn as well. It was a very, very difficult time because it made me look really hard at, you know, what am I, what am I trying to achieve here? Um, how am I, how, what, what kind of Catholic am I? How am I expressing my faith? How responsible am I for the responses that people have to the things that I'm writing? These people are telling lies about me, but are they also saying some true things about me? And it was really in the crucible for a while there. It was, it was very, very difficult. So what are we to make of Simka's story? And what can we learn as a faith community as we look back on some of the actions of the Catholic blogosphere over the years? I'm going to attempt to draw three lessons or conclusions, if you will, from the story of Simpka. And the first is the importance of charity. Remember that story Simka wrote about the vasectomy problem, as she put it, years before the election, and how she decided to make some changes after reflecting on her behavior? Well, one of the conclusions she came to is how different people can interact in their private and public spaces in what she calls the paradox of the internet. You know, it's it's not enough to be right about something. <laughs> you have to express it the right way and you have to remember that there's a human person in front of you. I mean, that's the great paradox of the Internet is that you immediately have a much bigger audience of people reading your work. And at the same time, you immediately feel much more removed from that human audience and you can forget very easily and you just start grandstanding and telling jokes and, you know, getting up on your platform. And the, the more people that you can reach, 
the easier it is to forget that these are actual people that you're reaching. So charity, yes, charity. (laughs) Regardless of our disagreements and debates, there is just no need to fall into these kind of attacks, character assassinations, or in the case of Simka's article, presumptions about other people's behavior. Which brings me to the second lesson. Sometimes I wonder if the things we are arguing about don't actually need to be argued about. (laughs) And Simka, as it turns out, has had the same realization. And I took a step back and I thought, if I tried to explain this to somebody who wasn't in this group, I would seem crazy because this doesn't really matter. But people lose perspective and they lose context and they can no longer tell the difference between things that people can legitimately disagree about. Simka likes talking about what she calls the death of context. And what she means by this is we often take what we read on the internet and misinterpret it because either one, we don't understand certain background or two, we are simply looking for ways to disagree with each other. This death of context will ultimately bring us to an important question, or at least it should. Does this really matter? (laughs) At the end of the day, does this thing I'm arguing about online or writing about in my blog really matter in the larger story of our lives, in the greater story of faith? And perhaps most importantly, we should be asking, what does matter? I thought about this question a lot after my interview with Simka. There was actually a point later in the day after the interview when I started to cry, thinking about that time after Simka's firing. It wasn't necessarily because she was fired, although I will be honest with you listeners, I was upset about it at the time because I loved the register and I adored her writings and I was confused. But I think in this case, I was crying because of the way in which people so deliberately and freely cheered her suffering. People only saw words on a screen, which they disagreed with. And because of that, they sought to end her career. They didn't actually see a human being. They didn't see a woman who made mistakes just like them. They didn't see a devout Catholic struggling to navigate the bizarre American political landscape also probably just like them. And they didn't see a mom who was now worried about how she would provide for her 10 kids after losing a substantial part of their family's income. They didn't see a human being. They simply saw words on a screen. So here is the third and final lesson we can draw from Simka and her story. 
Even after the craziness and the struggles of 2016, even after all of the hateful and horrible things people have thrown her way over the years, and even after her own mistakes, Simka is still herself. She's still honest. She's still incredibly funny. She's still willing to challenge our thinking, regardless of what side of the aisle you may fall on. She is the very definition of real, or as real as you can get on the internet. And I have to be honest, it actually changed my life. There's such a thing as helping people by being a mess. You know, that's that's something that's helpful to people as well. And and it and it's good for people to see that here here is somebody who is accomplished, here's somebody I admire. Now look look at her. Look what look what happened. Look what happened to her. And she got up again and, and, and made another stab at it. I mean that's immensely, immensely <sighs> It, it's it's helpful to people. It's helpful to be for people to see that to see that humanity. I discovered Simka as a young mom, newly staying at home, thousands of miles away from my family, with a husband who, at the time, was gone for about half the year for work. I was isolated and lonely, and I basically worried about everything. <laughs> and I found her. I found her blog with all her wit and her brutal honesty. I laughed and I breathed a sigh of relief because this lady doesn't pretend to have it all together. And maybe I didn't need to either. And this is at the heart of who Simka is, authenticity. The authenticity dilemma isn't about whether or not we should be honest on the internet. The authenticity dilemma is about who we really should be in the world and in our online spaces. Let me put it this way. I recently started seeing a spiritual director, and he says this word authentic that you, that people talk about. Um, they People use it to mean um, just being, just laying it all out there, just opening up your heart and letting everybody see, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Oh, here's my dirty kitchen floor and so on. And he says what he means by authenticity is being actually being who you're supposed to be in the eyes of God. That's authenticity. Authenticity isn't like going out without makeup on, <laughs> you know, or letting people see, oh, well, I did not vacuum today. Like, that's not, that's not really authenticity. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's definitely a place for that. It, it's, it's a terrible thing when everybody feels like they have to always show their absolute most polished, beautiful, uh, perfect side to the world and never and never admit any kind of flaws or distress or anything like that but but that's not actually but, but that's not the kind of authenticity that's actually going to it just it only it only takes you so far i guess because at the end of the day the story of simka's blogging is in fact a happy ending kind of story <laughs> in spite of all of the ups and the downs and the mistakes that were made her story should actually give us all hope the blog is and has always been a place for people like me to find encouragement, hope, and communion. And thankfully for all of us, Simka is not the only woman doing this very well. Next time on Mystery Through Manners. Many thanks to Simka and to all of the wonderful bloggers who I have interviewed really for this entire series, but especially this episode. 
Thank you to Kate Beek, as always, who helped me get this podcast off the ground, my husband, Ryan, and of course, our amazing musicians, Sean Garrison and the Mosleys. Please visit our website for information about this episode and all of the music you heard. Our schedule is a little bit different. We're going to be releasing one episode, the final episode of this series on Tuesday, since it is Thanksgiving next week. So please look out for the final episode on Tuesday. God bless you, and we will see you then.